0: Good morning. I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter six, to follow along as I read our text for this morning. We'll be in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6:25. Hear now what God says to us in his word. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Father, we come to you with Hearts that are burdened with cares of this life. Lord, we ask that this morning you would teach us from your word how to lay those burdens at your feet. Through the comforts you give us in your word. Lord, release us from the cares of this life. So that we may seek you with all our might, all our strength, all our heart, all our minds. And Lord, give us uh, understanding of what you're saying to us here. And, how, and give us the grace to apply it to our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, th- there are certain scriptures that when you come across them, you're just like struck with how accurately and honestly the Bible speaks to the full range of human experience. It doesn't pretend, uh, it, it doesn't look the other way, nor does it false advertise that when you become a Christian, all will just be rainbows and sunshine and you'll never have anxious thoughts again in your life. Now, if you hear that from a preacher, make sure you hold your wallets and run the other way. The Bible is honest. And understanding about our fears of living in a fallen world. And our fear of living without a crystal ball telling us what the future holds for our lives, for our careers, for our nation, for our children. And at the core, not knowing what tomorrow brings is the fuel for our anxiety and our worry. And if we allow it too strong a foothold in our lives, it will eat like acid into our souls. One of the weights that I've felt in preparing this sermon is just like the sum total and range of anxious worries probably in this room. Um, I, I don't know everybody like extremely well, but those of you who I do have relationships with, I can say from that small sampling, if we broaden it out, that most of us in here are carrying way more stress and way more anxiety than we often care to admit. Many of us have burdens on our backs that we need to lay before the Lord, perhaps even this morning. Burdens like... Who to marry? When to marry? Do I take this job and leave my own? Do I put my parents in a nursing home? Or should they come live with me? Do I reach out to my sibling to patch up that relationship? Or should should I just let it be? Or why does God give that couple children, but he hasn't given us children? All these concerns are real and they're valid but they can they can create a kind of panic within us that life is not going the way we thought it would go in our heads well in our text this morning jesus's voice speaks a comforting word into the chaos of our anxiety He speaks words that are not lofty, they're not difficult to understand, but they're unadorned. They're they're simple, they're, they're even loving. He's the great physician who applies just the right amount of dosage for our medicine. And as he so often does, he graciously puts his teaching on the bottom shelf for the least of us to reach. You know, he uses illustrations like Birds and flowers that we can easily grasp. And by them, he reminds us. And that is so often what we need, isn't it, when we're anxious? He reminds us of our heavenly Father who knows our every need. And he tends to them. And if our Father cares for our every need, then we are freed from the tyranny of tomorrow. We are freed to live with the best of our energy devoted to serving the Lord and glorifying Him in our lives. So, standing on the cusp of a new year, I want us to look at our text and take away these two uh, very tangible comforts that God gives to the anxious soul. One, God cares for our every need. God cares for our every need. And two, God knows our every need. God cares for our every need and God knows our every need. Well, let's look at first how God cares for us. Look at verse 25. Jesus begins with a loving command, do not be anxious. Notice he doesn't say try not to be anxious. But do not be anxious. Uh, It's it's not merely good advice, and it's also not an unrealistic aspiration either. Uh, But it's a command passed down to us from our king. Do not be anxious. And this command is so important that Jesus says it three times. Did you notice that? Look down at your Bibles just for a moment. Uh, Verse 25, therefore do not be anxious. Verse 31, therefore Do not be anxious. Verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious. I think Jesus wants us to know. Do not be anxious. But what is he forbidding? What is, what does he mean by anxious? The kind of anxiety our Lord forbids is one that is excessive worry and fear Springing from a lack of trust in God about something unknown and often outside of our control. It's it's an internal unrest. It's an uneasiness, a concern that exists in greater measure than the thing being worried about warrants. The key word there, I think, is excessive because... The Bible does not condemn all worry or all fear or concern that's normal to the human experience of living in a fallen world that's unpredictable and where tragic things do happen. What Jesus is forbidding and when it seems that worry begins to cross over the threshold into sinful anxiety is the kind of worry that consumes a person unnecessarily. That tends to doubt God actually cares for you or will in the end work all things for your good. A worry that's uh, unwilling to submit to the providence of God uh, or unwilling to see his hand in something. A worry that extends too far into the future and causes us to look at our circumstances more than we look at, at God. This is what Jesus forbids when he says, do not be anxious. Whenever today slows down uh, and you can get a bit of time to think, ask yourself these questions or find a loved one or a spouse that, that loves you enough to be honest with you. Are you the kind of person that is characterized by an overall spirit of anxiety are you rarely content in the Lord and in your circumstances? Do you only experience relief from anxiety when someone else is anxious with you? Do you take on the burdens of other people's and, and add them to your own and worry about them incessantly? Or well, here's another one. When you enter a room, do you bring warmth or do you bring this kind of like frenetic, nervous energy that controls the social thermostat and drags others into your worry? Well, friend, if any of that describes you, uh, then you may be anxious. But the good news is the Lord is happy to be patient with you. And a sign of his patience is that he repeats words of comfort again and again, even three times over. Do not be anxious. Cast your anxieties on him because he does care for you. Uh, he understands. He, he doesn't discredit the reality of our worries, but he also doesn't allow us to give in to them in a way that's sinful. You know, when you try to hold up your own world, it's no wonder you're anxious because you're relying on arms that are not strong enough to carry the burdens of your life. And if you do find yourself an anxious person, uh, pray to the Lord that he would that he would take that from you. Don't accept it and then confuse your anxiety with the personality that God has gifted you. It deeply concerns your happiness to let go of things that belong to the Lord. And keep careful watch over yourself, especially over your internal thoughts. And make them captive to the Lord and to his promises. Do not be anxious. Well, in the context of Matthew 6... The anxiety Jesus speaks of has even a finer point to it than just mere general anxiety about about life. Uh, It's the kind of anxiety that worries about providing for daily needs. And so, inevitably, it's anxiety linked to finances, one of the main concerns of our worry. And the underlying question throughout this section is who will meet our basic needs? If you look up at verses 19 through 21, this is a part of the section that the anxiety section is attached to. Uh, Jesus warns that building up treasures for yourself on earth rather than in heaven will steal your heart away from eternal things and place them, place it in things that will fade away. The more stuff you have, uh, the more concern you have for your stuff. The more concern you have for your stuff, the more you begin to over-worry and become anxious about it. And if money, or a better circumstance, is your ultimate security and safeguard against anxiety, then that is where the largest portion of your thoughts and your affections will naturally go. It's where your heart and your hope will be. And at the bottom, you will find yourself relying on your own planning or relying on your own strength rather than in the Lord's unrelenting watch over your life. Notice, however, though, if you're reading carefully, Jesus does not forbid our desiring or seeking after our temporal good. Uh, He's not speaking against the wisdom of investing or saving, but Jesus says our seeking after these things are temporal things. And while of some value, they must be held as secondary and subordinate to the pursuit of the higher aims of Christianity, like glorifying God with our life, killing sin, sharing the gospel, loving our neighbor, delighting in the riches of the cross. Do you look more at your 401k than your own heart throughout the week? So at the core, at the heart of the matter, Jesus is teaching on anxiety and money, is really about undivided devotion to God and not being worldly-minded. It's about keeping the main thing, the main thing in your life. You know, don't become so lost and consumed in the acquisition and the maintenance of more worldly stuff that your attention and your affections for God and for his kingdom uh, become distracted or Divided or dulled or uh, even neglected. Jesus is inviting us to reverse what the world tells us our greatest priorities ought to be and to consider the deepest questions of life. Like, where is your treasure? What will your affections and your thinking be directed toward? What will you spend your greatest energy for? What is the end of your life? Many Christians fumble through life not knowing what their highest aims are as citizens of God's kingdom. And inevitably, the vacuum created by that will be filled with excessive amounts of energy and worry going towards how you can make your life more comfortable. But Jesus asks us in the text, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, look at verses 25 through 30 with me. I'm going to read them again. to answer the question we had earlier. Who meets our basic needs? The answer being God. And both of these illustrations reveal that same truth. If you want, go home and read um, Job chapters 38 and 39 to see all the extensive ways God governs creation down to the smallest detail. And your mind will be blown at how much God does that often goes unnoticed. But these illustrations are not teaching us that we don't have to work for our food or we don't have to work for our clothing. Or if we just trust God, uh, there will magically appear food on our tables and clothes in our closets. There was a a heretical sect during Augustine's day that did that. They just stopped working. They were called the prayer men because they just prayed for whatever they needed. And uh, they faded pretty quickly because they didn't get what they needed. But as Martin Luther says, God provides food for the birds, but he does not drop it into their beaks. The Bible says elsewhere, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So we must work, but we must work in a way that our ultimate security does not depend on us. We're not working out of a sense of panic or anxiety that if I don't do this thing, I will not be provided for. Jesus's illustrations with the birds and the flowers are an example of an argument common in scripture, which is from the lesser to the greater. Right. So he picks up, he picks birds and flowers intentionally to point out God's minute, detailed care of things that seem unimportant. I mean, like, when is the last time you thought, like, how birds eat? Well actually I put out a bird feeder in the spring, so maybe that's not a great one. But the flowers, when's the last time you remember uh how are they petaled? How, how how do the petals get on there? How are they clothed? Or 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 when do you remember how beautifully designed a snowflake is only to be melted in a second? Birds are everywhere. They're here today, they're gone tomorrow. Flowers are everywhere. They're here today and they're gone tomorrow. But friends, if God so cares about birds and flowers, that are here one day and gone, gone the next, will he not also care for you who bear his own image? Did his son die for the birds? Did his son rise from the grave for the flowers? No, he died on the cross and he rose from the grave for you. He gives you himself as food to eat from heaven. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He gives us himself as food, and he clothes us with the robes of righteousness. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And if he went to such great lengths to lavish on you his grace and his love and to give you eternal life, do you not think then that he won't also with that give you the basic necessities for living your life? As the great preacher J.C. Ryle said, he who takes thought for perishable flowers will surely not neglect the bodies in which dwell immortal souls. we suffer more in our minds than we often do in reality. So much of our worry consists in hoping for God to fill our optional wants rather than seeing how he actually fulfills our daily needs. You know, like we know that God clothes his children, but in the back of our minds, we don't really want hand-me-downs. That's why Jesus calls us in verse 30. Oh, you of little faith. He links unbelief and little faith to this anxious kind of worrying. Where is our faith in our Savior's words? He's promised each day to give us our daily bread. Do you believe him? He's promised to give good gifts to his children. Do you believe that? Do you believe that if God took everything from you and left you only his son bleeding and dying on a cross, that it would be enough for you to be satisfied? If God took everything from us and left us only his son, we would still have abundantly more than we deserve. And we would still be richer than the richest person on earth. It's as if Jesus in this whole section is getting really close to us like a parent and is smiling. It's just like, why are you worried? What are you anxious about? I will give you rest. I will care for your every need. And indeed, our heavenly father cares for our every need. It is from his hand that we are fed like the birds. So trust in the Lord, not only for your salvation, but trust in the Lord for sustenance You know, when you find yourself uh, doubting his, his goodness to care for you, call out the lies that swirl in your own heart. Anxiety thrives in ambiguity. Bring your fears forward. Name them. Write them down. Don't resist them. And then lay them before your Lord in prayer. And there may be seasons in your life where you have to do that again and again throughout one day. But even if you don't feel it in the moment, go back to your soul and with the psalmist say, Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Wrestle against your flesh until you force it to see what is true. The Lord has dealt bountifully with you already. Trust in promises, not in feelings about the promises. So God cares for our every need. Let's look at the second comfort that God gives to anxious souls. God knows our every need. God knows our every need. Look down at um, verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious. There it is again. Saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things. Will be added to you. It's connected, obviously, to the last section. But you notice, like, verse 25 is a, therefore do not be anxious about your life. That's one kind of section. 31, therefore, the second, therefore do not be anxious, kind of another adding on to it. And then 34, another, do not be anxious. And then he adds another layer. It's kind of like three sections, but I've given you two comforts. You'll have to pay extra for the third comfort. Just kidding. We are not only comforted that our heavenly father cares for our needs, but that he knows them all. Uh, If God knows every thought before it appears on our lips, our father also knows what we need before we ask him. Uh, It's a great comfort to know that we don't need to inform God of our needs, but that he already knows them and he even knows them better than us. The one who created a stomach knows that you need food. The one who made your body knows that you need clothing. You even see his wonderful provision in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve, their eyes are opened because of their sin and they see that they're naked and the Lord, the first thing he does is he clothes them. When you think about how God knows and cares for your life, you really do see how pointless and powerless our worrying actually is. In the end, all worrying produces is stress. It doesn't actually produce results. Uh, This is seen in the earlier question of Jesus in verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? You can't add a single hour to your life. You can't turn one hair on your head gray. So it's a pure waste of your energy. To concern yourself with something you can't actually do about. Do anything about. If you're going to worry, spend it on something useful. Don't waste it on like outcomes or scenarios that are imaginary. How often uh, do we waste our thoughts, particularly right before bed, by just like running through scenarios in our heads that are not even real. And then we obsess and worry about these fake scenarios. If it's really bad, like me, you maybe even have like fake conversations and then you get upset about them. But instead, spend your time worrying about how you are going to love God more today. Or how you're going to live at peace with your spouse when you go home. Or how you're going to kill the pride that lurks in your heart. Focus your worry, if you're going to worry, on your righteousness. So that, that at the very least, it's something productive. Well, in these verses, in verses 32 and 33, we also see that Jesus sets up a contrast for us. How the world deals with the cares of life and how Christians are to deal with them. Two different paths. Uh, He wants us to know that just like we're not supposed to grieve like the world grieves without hope, we're also not supposed to be anxious like the world is anxious. When Jesus says in verse 32, the Gentiles seek after all these things, he's using the word Gentile there as shorthand to refer to anybody not a part of God's people. As we heard last week from Philip in Acts, we know that God welcomes Gentiles into his family. That's not what Jesus is using the word Gentile here. it's Just shorthand for the world, all those that are not in God's family. The contrast is that the Gentiles seek all these same things, but you should be marked as a Christian by seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The word there that he uses for Gentiles seeking is one that is not really the same word used for us seeking the kingdom. Uh, It's an intense form of the word seek. So when he says the Gentiles are seeking after all these things, the picture is a seeking that's like dominated. It dominates the one seeking. It it gives them worry and anxiety. All the things that Jesus told us uh, we shouldn't do earlier. It's not proper for those who have a heavenly father to be characterized by this same kind of seeking. If the world is to be characterized by worry and fear, then Christians are to be characterized by how they quietly trust God for all their needs. In the ancient world, uh, which is really no different from today's world, it just kind of is dressed up in different clothes, goes by different names. Uh, The many gods were prayed and sacrificed to in order to obtain a favor or a blessing from them. Okay, so the gods were kind of like glorified forms of men. They were fickle. They changed their minds all the time. Their moods changed. And they liked wine and sex. And most of all, they naturally cared very little about the affairs of mankind unless it benefited them. So a Gentile worshiper would try and catch the attention of the god by making vows and sacrifices in order to get them to intervene favorably on their behalf. So if you're going on a sea journey, you would sacrifice to the sea god for safe travel. We even saw uh, this a few weeks ago when Philip preached on Philip or Paul's uh, shipwreck voyage that the boat had images of gods on them for their travel. If you wanted a child, you prayed to the fertility goddess. If you Wanted a good crop yield, you prayed to the rain god, and so on. And because the gods did not know all your needs or cared about them, the Gentiles would babble on in their prayers. They would heap up many words thinking they've been heard because they like bludgeoned their deity with their requests. This is what Jesus is forbidding us to pray like a few verses earlier in the same chapter. Don't pray like the Gentiles. And you shouldn't pray like the Gentiles precisely because it misrepresents who God actually is. If God knows our every need before we ask and he watches over us, then we're not trying to convince him in our prayers to take notice of us or to care for us. What father would forget his own children? And have you noticed in the text, every time Jesus never says the Heavenly Father, but he, he, he makes it personal, your Heavenly Father. It's intentionally personal for the one who believes in the Lord, because God is not this vague deity or a higher power or a fate that guides your life and cares uh, for your needs, but He's your Heavenly Father. And because the world doesn't trust in a God like that, they go on seeking and seeking after their daily bread and anxious toil. And Jesus is saying, don't be like them. It's improper for God's people to look like God's enemies. Our God is not like the gods that men have created for themselves. He's not like us that he changes his mind or he changes his mood. And precisely because he's unchangeable and he's immovable and unable to be acted upon by anything outside of himself, he can be to us a rock that grounds our feet in the worst storms. And in contrast to the gods, he actually delights to show grace to us. He hears our prayers because he inclines his ear to us. He loved us before we ever loved him. And so he knows our needs before we ever know them. The Bible says that before we were born, God wrote in his book every day of our life that he had formed for us. Do you not think that he who formed our days also knows what is needed for us to get through the day? And that he will gladly give it. Nothing happens to us, good or evil, apart from God's providence in our life. Don't be like the world and and believe things happen at random, or worse, uh, that some vague idea of unguided fate holds the cards. It would be a very scary thing to not have a heavenly father who guides and governs your life. Because we know that, as Spurgeon says, when a storm does come, the storm has a bit in its mouth. And the Lord is pulling back on the reins. But for those who have no God, or their gods can, are powerless to do nothing, they're left out in the cold. They're left to only worry about life on their own strength. They have to toil in anxiety because there's no God to save them. And God's people are not to be like that because we have a father in the heavens who's given us his spirit, who abides in us, that watches over us and guides our life. In contrast to the world, Jesus says we are to be a people first marked Not by anxious seeking of the things of the world, but by our seeking of the things of heaven, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. By kingdom of God, I think what he means is the rule of God in the lives of Christians and the rule of God in the world, too, that is making inroads into the darkness Seek out that kingdom, the way God in in the Sermon on the Mount is telling you to live. Concern yourself with these things. Don't worry too much about where your food will come from or where your clothes will come from. Worry about how to please the Lord in obedience, how to rely on him. How to grow in the knowledge of him, helping others grow in him, which is discipling, sharing the gospel, worshiping God with the saints, doing all the things a Christian does, doing all the things a citizen of heaven does. We should be a people that we live our lives in such a way that a non-believer would go, huh, that's interesting, they do something different. If your unbelieving friends would be surprised to find out that you're a Christian Christian, Something's gone amiss. And seeking God's kingdom, he also says, seek his righteousness. By the word righteousness, I don't think what Jesus has in mind here is the kind of Pauline imputed righteousness. That our justification stands on where we receive the righteous standing of God because we're in Christ. I think here the word righteousness is used differently. Like in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, righteousness refers to living morally upright lives that glorify God by living according to his standard. So for us as Christians who are born again, it's the good fruit you bear as a new creature in Christ. Pursue that a righteousness that he tells us earlier that needs to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees and without which we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And and holy living, it just doesn't fall into our laps. We must seek it. That's why he tells us to seek it. We must discipline our minds and our affections and our actions to accord with what the Lord has said is right and wrong. And Jesus promises us that if we make these things our first priority and subordinate every other care under it, God will provide for us. So God cares for our every need, and God knows our every need. Two comforts you can take in to an unknown year. And these comforts are mighty weapons against the foe of anxiety. If you're here this morning and overwhelmed by the burdens and the cares of your life, the first step in the right direction is to look to Jesus, the burden bearer, and be still in his presence. Look at the cross where the Lord took on all your sins and all your burdens and find refuge from your anxiety there. The cross is the place where we are released from carrying the weight of the world because another has carried it in our place. Jesus said as much when he went to die on the cross. He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Not in your circumstances, not in what life brings, not in what you have. In me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And because he's overcome the world, we can come to Jesus and find rest for our weary souls. The tyranny of tomorrow is always threatening to cross the border into today. But Jesus tells us sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So narrow your focus. Live your life one day at a time, walking in the peace Christ gives. And leave tomorrow to your heavenly father who rules over the earth and establishes your steps. If tomorrow brings more trouble, then God will give more grace to meet it. There is no cross we cannot bear when the Lord holds up the heaviest side. We're going to close our time singing, be still my soul. Singing to the Lord is a kind of cheat code that short circuits anxiety. When our hearts are troubled, we sing. And what a great song to soothe our anxieties. Listen to this. Be still my soul. The Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change he faithful will remain. Be still my soul. Thy best, thy heavenly friend through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. Let's pray. Father, with the same heart, we can rejoice in you and turn around in an hour or 30 minutes and be anxious. Lord, you know our weakness. You know our frame. Help us. Bear our burdens for us. If we're reluctant to give them to you, Lord, take them from us forcefully. We know that you care for us. We know that you know our needs. So we don't even need to ask for them. Because you know far more abundantly than we do what we most need. Your providence is tailor-made for each one of us in here. So Lord, help us to walk in the trust of the Lord. Help us to rest in you going into the new year. That we don't need to be matching the anxiety that the world tells us to have. But we can quietly trust that you order all things. Lord, thank you for this word. Be with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.